0: Hi, I just wanted to share a quick note before we start this episode with Dr. Michael Leonard. You should know that the audio for this episode was recorded in November of 2019. So this was long before COVID-19 was considered a pandemic. And this was also before Dr. Leonard spent 40 days in the ICU battling and recovering from this virus. We will likely do an episode down the line on Dr. Leonard's experiences and maybe his new insights. But for now, we thought it was still important to share his timeless and humbling wisdom that's outlined in this episode. So enjoy. Welcome to the Safe and Reliable Podcast. I'm your host, Salima Ismail. Our second episode features Dr. Michael Leonard, a founding partner of Safe and Reliable Healthcare. With his compassion, humility, and thoughtfulness, Dr. Leonard is one of those people who is perfectly suited to working in healthcare and an ideal guide to HRO practices.
1: Being a physician is kind of in my DNA My my dad was a doctor, was at National Institutes of Health for 47 years, a variety of uncles and other folks in my family that have been physicians. All my dad's friends were early people at NIH when it was very small back in the 50s. So as a child, I grew up around science and I grew up about listening to these pretty amazing people talk about the things they were doing. And that was a remarkable time. If you think that when my dad was a medical student in Boston in 1943, they got penicillin for the first time. And that was a game changer because prior to that, people got infected and they they died. And now you had this magic medicine where you could treat people and they just amazingly got way better very quickly. There was a lot of things that were discovered, how the kidney works, the ability to do heart surgery. I've come to appreciate it. You grow up and realize these people are pretty special and pretty smart and, and very prominent in the world of science.
0: If you are not already impressed with Dr. Leonard's family ties to the incredible leaps in medicine, listen to this anecdote he shared offhand.
1: I remember when my daughter spent a summer working at NIH, and she was hanging out with my father. And my dad was like, oh, yeah, you know, I used to drink beer with Watson and Crick. And she's like, what? <laughs> she won the Nobel Prize. It's like, yeah, they were just friends.
0: So perhaps unsurprisingly, Dr. Leonard pursued medicine as a profession. At first, he considered immunology like his father, but then the reality of the situation set in.
1: The politics of being an academic immunologist that I'd probably have to spend eight or 10 years under somebody's wing before I could get my own funding, it was extremely competitive. All the guys that wrote the textbook chapters generally didn't get along with each other very well, so it wasn't this hugely collaborative community. And as as I spent more time taking care of patients in internal medicine, but I just realized I was kind of more action-oriented.
0: The next choice was cardiology but that also was not quite right.
1: And what actually took me away from cardiology was, uh, I remember one of the cardiologists that I really respected deeply, and I was sitting with him one morning after he'd been up all night, and he said, I just reserved Tuesdays for my family, right? The rest of it is just a blur, and that didn't exactly have the appeal of work-life balance in it. And then I kind of realized that The people that seemed to be pretty happy with this were the anesthesiologists, and I ended up going into anesthesia and doing subspecialty training in cardiac anesthesia. It's complicated, it's challenging, and uh, incredibly rewarding. So that ended up being my passion for the next 25 years.
0: However, being passionate about anesthesia did not shield Dr. Leonard from the politics of medicine.
1: And I went out in private practice for three years, which really did not agree with me because it was all about productivity and doing cases and, and essentially money and a lot of politics there. And, and in fact, the private practice I was in was a very large one. And we had some bad things happen to patients and nobody wanted to address it. You know, They just completely avoided the subject and even got one ridiculous conversation of, let's not make waves because these people bring us a lot of business. I mean, this was a 47-year-old woman who bled to death after Having a lumbar disc fixed, which should never occur. And at that point, I I moved into the Kaiser system that was much more integrated and collaborative.
0: And the Kaiser system was mostly an improvement in the day-to-day operations. But when things went wrong, they went really wrong. It affected innocent lives.
1: Well, I think the major inflection point in my career with regard to patient safety occurred July 8th, 1993, when a healthy eight-year-old boy came into our operating room. And because we were short of anesthesiologists that day, we contracted out the case an outside anesthesia group. It was a fairly routine ear surgery to patch a hole in an eardrum left by ear tubes as a child. And it was pretty straightforward, but it was about a two-hour case. And essentially, we cooked and suffocated an eight-year-old boy. And he died with a temperature of 108 and a pH of 6.7, which is incompatible with life, normal 7.4, and a CO2 level of 200. I think that was... So striking about the death of this eight-year-old boy was seeing how egregious it was. It wasn't somebody who was like super sick and they were on the knife edge and we tipped them the wrong way. This was a completely healthy child having an elective procedure and there was no reason he should not have walked out of the hospital and gone home with his parents.
0: So if there was no reason for this to happen, why did it?
1: Unbeknownst to me, we had a very problematic anesthesiologist caring for the patient. He'd been involved in a lot of adverse events that none of us knew about. He'd been cited for falling asleep, not paying attention, being difficult in the operating room before. Actually, was kind of on his final, final, last straw with administration. He just completely intimidated people, and it just was this horror show series of events that, as you talked to people and listened, you could see the whole thing unfold and folded over two hours. It wasn't like there was a lightning strike. It just got worse and worse and worse. And these nurses, when when somebody you know and respect looks you in the face and say, we were praying we'd get out of the operating room with this child alive and we didn't know how to fix it. And they didn't even feel safe enough to go into the substerile room between the two ORs and get on the phone and say, Would you please have somebody come in here? Because anybody in their right mind would have stopped this case in about four seconds and this child would be alive. And it just was wrong.
0: Incredibly wrong. But yet, this was not the first time something this horrific had happened.
1: We had a 15 year old girl die after elective surgery. She came in to get a, her, her basically her jaw fixed. It was her Christmas present and she lost her airway just about Christmas Eve. And by the time they called, I was the one who ended up putting the breathing tube in her. She, she never woke up. And I was like, these people brought their daughter to the hospital. They went home without her. I need to sit and talk to them. And there was a zillion excuses of, oh, we'll get around to it. You don't understand. We have to protect the peer review process. And I was like, you don't understand. These people lost their daughter. And so that was an antecedent about a year prior to this event. And then when the hospital decided to kind of close the ranks, you can't talk to people and we'll take care of it. I'm like, wrong answer. We didn't do so well last time and we're not doing that again.
0: Remembering his experience with the 15-year-old girl Dr. Leonard looked to his family for advice on what to do this time.
1: I just reflect on my wife who, when I came home that day and told her about it, she said, okay, what are you going to do about it? This gets swept under the rug again or are you going to stand up for what's right? So I ended up Being an expert witness for the Colorado Board of Medical Examiners, because I reported this physician, which is a pretty rare event and certainly goes against the culture. And when the assistant attorney general came to sit down with me in my office and he said, one, we deeply appreciate you did this because this doesn't happen enough. But I really want you to think about whether you want to go through this because this is going to be painful. They'll assassinate your character. They'll put you on trial. This is going to be a real mess.
0: The Attorney General was not lying. Dr. Leonard endured five years of his character being attacked inside and outside the courtroom as he worked hard to bring justice for this little boy's death. In the end, he prevailed, and the anesthesiologist in question lost his license. Additionally, Dr. Leonard's actions helped bring some long-term change to Kaiser Permanente.
1: You know, I have to give a huge amount of credit to Doug Bonicum and the leadership of Kaiser Permanente that they adopted a very transparent, honest approach to communicate unanticipated adverse events where when something went wrong, we told people the truth. We told them we cared and we told them what we we're going to do to fix it. And lots of times in medicine, people say, well, you can't talk to them; we'll get sued, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, it's just a bad decision because we already hurt him. And now we're going to hurt him twice. And ironically, what's very clear is if you're open and honest with people, they're extremely understanding. And there are many, many examples of organizations, whether it's COPEC or Harvard Risk Management or Kaiser, where when you're honest, you care, tell them the truth, you take care of them. You're far less likely to get sued and, you know, you do what's right for the patient.
0: The honesty and open communication from healthcare professionals that Dr. Leonard advocates goes in both directions, towards the patients and families and to other members of the care team.
1: For the rest of my clinical career there, and I ran the operating room for a bunch of that, I was relentless. I mean, I would just tell everybody, whether you you cleaned the room, you were a tech, you were a nurse, you were a physician, if you ever have a problem, you're unable to address it, you feel scared, call me 24-7. I don't care if you call me at 3 in the morning. The only way we're going to have a problem is if you don't call me.
0: This was a great starting point of creating a culture around patient safety, but there was a lot more to learn and implement. So Dr. Leonard found a kindred spirit in a slightly different field.
1: Bob Helmreich, who is extremely well known in the world of aviation safety, was a professor at the University of Texas, ran the Human Factors project there and was involved in career source management or, you know, how do you get highly trained professionals like pilots to work effectively together and speak up and not crash airplanes because that's where they got into trouble. It was it was almost never the inability of the airplane to, to fly safely. It was the inability of the people working together to manage a problem, which was pretty analogous to to the world of medicine. So I called up Bob Helmreich and talked to him, and we were kind of birds of a feather. So that led to about a 10 or 11-year relationship, and we learned a lot from those guys. So that really kind of gave me insights into the concept of high reliability and complex systems and human performance in those environments and really the importance of culture.
0: Culture is a fascinating subject but especially for doctors and healthcare professionals because they seem to be evaluated through a different lens than other professions.
1: If you're a lousy bus driver or a lousy pilot, they're not going to let you do it. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversations where people are like, yeah, well, they're not a great doctor, but think about how long they spent and how much dedication, how many years they spent learning how to do this. So this whole concept of somebody spent 10 or 12 years between medical school and residency and their college, and they've made great sacrifices to get here, which is really not relevant to the fact that they're really not for good at it and you wouldn't let them take care of your family. And and in fact, when I became chief of the anesthesia group, there were about 30 of us and I did an informal poll and I said, well, okay, are there any people in our group that you wouldn't like to take care of your children? If your child was injured on a weekend and you brought them to the emergency room and they needed surgery, is there anybody in our group that you would be hesitant to to have take care of your family? And there were two names that came up consistently and ultimately they left because the basic premise was if you wouldn't let them take care of your family, then why would we let them take care of anybody else?
0: But even if you trust someone's clinical skill, that does not necessarily make them the best fit for the job.
1: Probably the biggest mistake I made being a chief anesthesia for six and a half years was I tolerated a couple people who were clinically capable. They were just resistant to everything we wanted to do, always Operated with self-interest, and in retrospect, probably should have gotten rid of them because they just slowed the whole thing down. They created a lot of rancor and backtalk, and they're always just trying to undermine what we we're trying to do. But if you stand for something and you can explain it and stand behind it, the overwhelming majority of people will follow you and get with the program. You know, if we're going to spend our time doing this and it's complicated, high-risk work, then then we needed to bring habitual excellence to the table every day.
0: That is not to say that this is not the intention of the majority of providers. It's just that the system is not necessarily built to support excellence.
1: We're all trained in apprenticeships, and we were trained that if we were smart and expert and tried hard, everything would go right. You could throw enough smart people at any problem, and we'd figure it out. And that's just not realistic. The complexity and the pace of clinical care, that doesn't work. So we needed to learn from other cultures, companies, industries that manage risk and hazard on on a daily basis and hardwire the behaviors and hardwire the processes. And and that's I think we're on that journey today.
0: But many of us wonder, how do you bring people along on this journey?
1: If you're a leader, you have to define a culture and you have to set expectations. And when you have people that really, you know, you can get 80 or 90 percent of people going the right direction, The moment of truth comes when you have to kind of stand up publicly and stand for something. And so people would mumble, well, that isn't being fair or right or this or that to somebody. And then you kind of remind them, why are we having this conversation? And ultimately, I think the upside of this is that we raise the bar. We're going to be a high-performance culture.
0: But to keep that high-performance momentum going, you must have buy-in.
1: You look at healthcare organizations that are truly excellent, like the Mayo Clinic system, they're extremely intentional about how they hire. They hire for attitude, they hire for fit, and people that bring 100% to the table every day. You hear time and time again as people come here, they either last less than a year or they stay 30. You either fit the culture and you get out of bed every day to make a difference or that's not the place for you. And I think high-performing cultures, I mean, you can look across all industries. Why do people do behavioral interviewing? And historically in medicine, we've hired for technical skill. When we just assume everybody's going to behave. Well, one is the technical skills should be given. I mean, you look in the airline industry, Southwest Airlines hires for attitude and behavior, and everybody who shows up for an interview has a piece of paper from the FAA that says you can fly a 737 aircraft, but they do not assume good citizen model. They assume you're part of the culture, you're going to people treat people with respect, you're going to go the extra mile, you're never going to walk by a problem. And I think that's translatable to any industry. You just have to be intentional about it and you have to be willing to define your culture. And in fact, there's a great resource, which is Tom Krause's book called Leading with Safety. I mean, Tom Krause is arguably the world's expert on industrial safety. And he wrote a book about 10 years ago and it said, you want to look at truly excellent organizations? They have one set of rules that apply to everybody. Leadership relentlessly works to, to improve culture, define culture. And you know they're fair, but they're relentless about it. And You look at those organizations, they're safe, they're efficient, they're profitable.
0: So why has this excellence not been widespread in healthcare organizations?
1: People are very technically skilled. Have we equipped them to be good leaders, to negotiate, to talk to people about clear expectations and what occurs if they can't or won't deliver those? No. Those are hard conversations. And so people tend to avoid them. But I mean, there's an old Adage, which is you're going to pay somewhere and you, you might as well pay in the right place.
0: To Dr. Leonard, the right place to invest is in people.
1: I mean, what's remarkable about people in medicine is they deeply care. They're really all smart. Everybody in a hospital is smart. I don't care what you do in a hospital, they are smart people. When you get to experience their ability to optimally do their work and care for people in the way they want, it's remarkably heartwarming. You know, that's the motivating part of all this is the ability to make a difference.
0: And Dr. Leonard has witnessed this difference time and time again
1: example I would give you is we had the privilege of working with some maternity obstetrical units in the United Kingdom. And one of the more challenged ones was the merger of two in, in Huddersfield and Calderdale in England. And and so they closed one of these units and merged them together. And, you know, there were candlelight protests, parades, and, and it was a big deal. It was not a low profile event, but they were two very different cultures. And literally the two groups of nurse midwives for about a year and a half, they wore their original uniforms. So they had the blue team, red team, and never the twain shall meet. They went in there and they had very good physician leadership. And Martin DeBono is a prominent obstetrician, great guy. We kind of assessed and said, here's where we need to go. And they went there. A year and a half later, a remarkably different culture They were one team. And I remember at the end of this collaborative, uh, Martin getting up in a room of a couple hundred people and he said, you know, if you had told me a year and a half ago that obstetrical harm was was completely avoidable, I would have told you, you know, you're, you're just full of crap. But I will stand here today and say the rate of acceptable obstetrical harm is zero and we should never hurt people, and we have the ability to do it. When you get to participate in things like that, you know they're going to sustain the work, right? And that's heartwarming.
0: If you would like to reach Dr. Leonard or have any questions or comments about the show, please email podcast at care. That's all for today. The Safe and Reliable podcast is produced by me, Salima Ismail, with the help of Noah Karoshio and Josh Pru. Our theme song, Happy Music, is produced by Monkeyman535 from freesound.org. Special thanks to Michael Leonard, Alner Jamal, and Tyler Small. And an extra special thanks to you for tuning in. See you again soon.